Let me say up front, uh, I understand what's going on when I serve as an interim preaching pastor. I understand that from day one, you are praying, Lord, please send us a new pastor. I, I get that. And uh, that's what you ought to be praying, and I'll be praying that with you. Um, not because I anticipate being unhappy in my experiences here, but because I want what's best for this congregation of God's people. I want to thank you, though, that you did not um, welcome me in the way that one church did. This, this goes back a ways. 1988, I, I became the interim preaching pastor at Port Perry Baptist Church. And on the first Sunday I was there, they chose for scripture reading Psalm 91. Three verses into my interim preaching pastor role, we were reading, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Um, <laughs> I said to them, I I understand what it's all about, but that's a bit over the top, um, it seems to me. So so, uh, thank you for not not doing that to me today. Some of you probably uh, have discovered, as I have, that um, spending time in a foreign land, land that is not your own, can be very disorienting. If, if you're a, a stranger, a pilgrim, a foreigner in a land that is not your own, you have to deal perhaps with issues of language. And you, you hear them saying things that you're quite sure are meaningful. They just don't have much meaning for you. That can be disorienting. Um, customs are different and, and so we have to adjust to that. I, I still remember it was 43 years ago when, uh, when we immigrated, our family immigrated from Bloomington, Indiana to Toronto, Ontario. One of the things I learned early on about custom was that, at least at, at that time it was true, in, in Canada, at the end of a church service, we all sat back down. Never did that. In America, I also learned that in Toronto, at least, uh, if if I came into a home as a visitor, it was understood that I would take off my shoes. Back in Middle America, I would only take off my shoes if I really felt at home there, and probably if I got invited to do it. That was that was a different custom. But I remember, I remember my my first time in Brazil. I've had the chance to teach in the seminary in Brazil twice. First time I was there, actually my first full day in Brazil, I was uh, was trying to communicate in uh, in a large group, and I I wanted to say okay to somebody out there. And so I did what I, what, I, what I naturally did if I had to use a gesture and not language, and I went, okay. At which point the pastor standing next to me said, what you just did is an obscene gesture. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, I, I am feeling disoriented here for sure. 
So from that day forward, for me, if I want to say okay by a gesture, it's like that. I, that other one, never, ever again. The food is different. Some of that's good. I mean, I remember being in Brazil and being introduced to feijoada. Not to mention the cafezinho, the little coffee. There's no coffee in the world as good as cafezinho in Brazil. But it's different. The laws may be different. Even a little thing like which side of the road you drive on. So as I stood there at a street in Cambridge, England, I, I, I suddenly realized, whoa, I, I guess I, I always have to look both ways because I can never quite remember which way those cars in that lane close to me would be coming from. So where, wherever you might have been, um, near and far, if you're in a, in a different land, it can be very disorienting. Even something as simple as the way we greet one another, shaking hands. Uh, twice, my wife and I have been in Uganda. And in Uganda, if I shake hands with a man, it's, it's not a single action like that. It's a triple action like that, and then locking thumbs, and then that again. So if you've got to shake hands with a lot of guys, it takes a long time to get the meeting started. Different can be disorienting. You have to stop and think, where am I? And, and how do I do it here? Now, if it's disorienting to be in a land that's not my own, it's even worse to feel like a stranger in my own land. And that's the way Orthodox, conservative, traditional Christians often feel these days in Canada. The morals, they've changed. Newsflash, in case you hadn't noticed. The related laws have changed. So, Canadian political leaders prided themselves on the fact that we were progressive and among the first nations in the world to adopt same-sex marriage. Ten years ahead of those laggards in the USA to the south of the border. And so our, our morals, our laws, our customs, they change, and they've changed in ways that make many of us feel disoriented, make us feel like exiles in our own land. But that's really nothing new for the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, having, having that kind of feel can take us back to what we find in the New Testament scriptures. And for a long time now, I have thought that, that given, given our current status in Canada, the, the first epistle of Peter in the New Testament just this reads as, as if it were written for us. And, and so I, I thought for some time, I, I, really, I really would like to develop a series of sermons looking through First Peter. 
And so, and so when I said yes to the invitation to take on this role here at Crestwick, I thought, wow, this, this could be the time to do it, uh, to make my way through First Peter, uh, to, to think through it, help these people think through it. What does it say and what does it mean for us? And then I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, just to start a series on Easter Sunday, I mean, Easter Sunday is special. And then it hit me. First Peter begins with an outpouring of praise to God for the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that sealed it. So I decided, yes, indeed. And so I do want us today to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter begins this epistle by, by telling us, yes, we really are exiles. Wherever we may be living as the people of God. Now, he says here in, in the Greek, he, he's, he mentions these are people of the diaspora, the Greek term that, that we've adopted even today to talk about people who are uh, living away from their homeland. And so normally, at this point in time, diaspora would have been used to describe the Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman world. But here, it seems obvious, Peter's using the term to describe believers in general, Gentiles as well as Jews. Uh, and using it in a metaphorical way to say, wherever you may live, it may be your home province, any of these mentioned here, but you are 
foreigners, as it were, not quite at fully at home. So see, for example, as a way of seeing, he's talking primarily, it appears about Gentiles. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Living in ignorance was, was not a way Peter would have spoken about, about Jews, but about Gentiles. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, you've been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That would not be a way that he would describe the faith of ancient Israel. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then in verse 11, he describes his readers as foreigners and exiles. Formerly, you were not a people. It's a way of talking about the Gentiles, not a way of talking about Israel, the covenant people. So, so Peter is saying, whoever you are as a believer in Jesus, the Messiah, wherever you may live, I recognize that you and I, we are not quite fully at home. We are sojourners, pilgrims, not quite at home. It's a way of saying, and we'll look at this more when we get to chapter 2, the church is called to be a, a distinct society within the wider society. He will call the church the holy nation. We have our own anthems, in addition to the national anthem of the wider society. We, we have our own ultimate ruler, the risen Christ, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're a counterculture. But Peter says... You can rejoice that though you are in many ways exiles, not quite fully at home where you are, you are God's chosen exiles. You're elect exiles who are the God's people because of the foreknowledge of God the Father, namely God's eternal purpose to save you and make you his own. Foreknowledge, as, as a way of describing God's knowledge of us in Scripture, means much more than just knowing in advance what we will do. But I don't have the time to go develop that in detail. It was purposed by God the Father. He says, you, you were drawn to faith by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which made you obedient to the gospel, obedient to Jesus Christ, and therefore sprinkled with his blood, redeemed from your guilt and from your empty way of life. So it's a way of saying, take heart, exiles. You may not be somebodies according to the wider world around you, but you are somebodies in God's eyes. The Father who purposed to save you, the Spirit who drew you to faith in the Son. So we're exiles, sojourners, pilgrims. So we ask ourselves, is this the way it is, world without end? Is it just that way forever? 
And the answer is a resounding no. And, and the reason for that, that resounding no, the reason for that hope, is found, he says, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he says at verse 3, Praise be to God. Why? Because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's given us new birth, spiritual rebirth, regeneration by the Spirit of God. We are, we are made new persons in the present. So that's what salvation now in the present is about. We are delivered from our guilt And we are delivered from the tyranny of sin by the gift of God's Spirit. We are made new persons. But this present salvation, Peter says, is is a, a guarantee of a perfect and final salvation yet to come because he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Hope is not about now. Hope is about the future. What God has done for us in the present is the the down payment of all that we're going to enjoy eternally. And he says it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it gave ground for our hope because by resurrecting him, God declared Jesus to be the Lord and Savior through whom God is bringing deliverance to this world. And so, as Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, when he raised him from the dead and declared him to be Lord and Messiah, which means that he is alive to judge and to reign. The unbelieving world need not fear a dead king, But a resurrected and very much alive judge and king, the unbelieving world ought to fear. And believers ought to rejoice in. And Peter says, this is, it guarantees us, verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Our inheritance is guaranteed, and we are guarded, he will say, in verse 5, by God's power. We who believe, it's through faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of this final salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, we need to understand, as Peter and Paul and the other apostles will tell us elsewhere, that the resurrection of Jesus is not only the guarantee of that future salvation that we will enter into, it's a preview of that. In other words, maybe this is the point at which I'm messing up Easter for you. In biblical terms, as as Peter says here, and, and as I will show you, Paul says also, Our final salvation doesn't come when we die. We don't enter into the final state of things after death. Scripture's concern is is much more about life after, life after death. 
In other words, Jesus was raised not on the day that he died, but on the third day. And when we die, we are absent from the body, present with the Lord, but we are waiting with the Lord, his glorious return, the resurrection of our bodies, and our entrance into the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. Now, Peter says here uh, in in verse 4 that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But that's like saying your inheritance is in the bank. It's in the bank for safekeeping. And at the right time, you'll get it. Now, when it comes time to get it, that doesn't mean, good, I'm going to run off to the bank and I'm going to live in that bank. It's preserved there, but you'll enjoy the inheritance on a wider scale. Similarly, it's shielded for us in heaven now because our ultimate salvation resides in Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the King who will come. But when he comes, he will raise us from the dead and and we will enjoy life in the new heaven and new earth. So the ultimate destiny of God's people is not heaven as opposed to earth, uh, strumming unreal harps on unreal clouds. It's the new creation. In other words, this earth soaked up the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Messiah, when he died, will also be the scene of his victory when he makes all things new. Think about some things the Apostle Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he he has this chapter-long exposition about the resurrection of the dead, his argument is, Jesus has been raised from the dead, verified by hundreds of eyewitnesses, credible eyewitnesses. But Jesus has been raised from the dead, he says, as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have a euphemism for the death of believers. He's the firstfruits. And so all will be raised. First, Christ the firstfruits, then those who belong to him at his coming. And then, and then comes the end, the rest, we, even the unrighteous dead will be raised for judgment. And so Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and it will happen when the Lord returns in glory and raises us from the dead and and completes our salvation, body and soul, as whole persons. Think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. when When he writes to believers there, he says, I don't want you to grieve about your, your dead fellow believers like others who have no hope. What is the hope that he describes? The hope is that God raised Jesus from the dead and so he will bring with Jesus those who belong to him. 
And so at that final trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. I mean, and then he talks about the fact that, well, okay, those of us who are still alive, we'll be caught up to meet them. That's like an afterthought in the passage. The point of the passage is the dead will rise. That's the hope of believers. There's um, um, a song that probably most of us have sung at some point in the past, um, written by Bill and Gloria Gaither, Because He Lives. How many of you have sung that at some point? Okay, uh, that's a majority for sure. That's a super majority. Now, Bill and Gloria, they're, they're fellow Hoosiers. Okay, my wife and I grew up in central Indiana. Bill and Gloria live in central Indiana. I used to see the Gaither Trio on TV when I was a teenager, and they were a few years ahead of me. So Bill and Gloria wrote the song, Because He Lives, and we've, and we've sung it probably several times in the past. The, the problem, I mean, everything the song says is true. The problem with the song is it only gets as far as what happens when we die. Third stanza, final stanza, uh, talks about uh, fighting that final war with pain and then at death, about death gives way to victory. But the idea of victory is what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the resurrection of the body that happens at the return of Christ. So for years, I've said, you know, somebody ought to write a fourth stanza that actually gets that song to where it ought to go, to the resurrection at the return of the Lord. And, and finally, I, I, I just decided no one else is going to do it, so I will. So I wrote a fourth stanza for that song. And I, I actually tried to send it to Bill, but I have no idea whether he actually got it. I, I had a dream one night that he used it in a concert without giving me credit. But I, I have no reason to think that actually happened. Now, I'd like to sing it for you, <laughs> but I'm not going to, because um, that would empty out the church faster than a Doug Ford press conference. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, but the words are, and when he comes in clouds of glory, to raise the dead, great mystery, then I will rise to meet my Savior and I will live and reign with him eternally. That's the ultimate point of our hope, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, which is the preview of what we who belong to him will experience. And so that's what we're looking for. Resurrection, salvation of whole persons in the new creation. But we aren't there yet, are we? No, we're not. And so Peter recognizes here in verses 6 and 7 that while we wait to experience that inheritance, we experience various trials, tests of our faith. But, he says, our faith in the risen Christ gives us joy as that faith is tested. 
Now, when you and I read about believers experiencing trials of their faith in the New Testament, we're probably tempted to go to the extreme and think martyrdom. But that's not what you and I experience, and so it may seem kind of unreal for us. But, but actually, when we look through 1 Peter, what we see is that Peter has in view things like social exclusion and marginalization and insult as tests of our faith in the present. So, for example, in 2.12, he refers to the, the idea that the pagans accuse you of doing wrong. And in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, he, he's, he's talking about Jesus and the way that he was reviled. And his point there is, we experience the same kind of thing and we ought to respond as he did. In chapter 3, verse 9, um, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And then chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. In other words, they say, you're no fun anymore. Why don't you live the way you used to? So, so it's insults, it's slander, it's suggesting you're crazy, it's, it's social exclusion, it's that kind of thing that these believers were experiencing. And those are tests of our faith. Because that, that kind of experience says to us, what, what I believe, what we believe is not what maybe the most of the people around me believe. It's not what some of my family believe. It's not what many of my friends or former friends really believe. It's not what the cultural elites tell me I ought to believe. Is it really true? So someone says to you, do you, do you really believe all that stuff? I mean, really? I mean, that might have been okay for people a couple thousand years ago, maybe even a thousand years ago. But really? Or, or they may just say, look, frankly, you're weird. Uh, they probably say that because they've watched that crazy egg commercial on TV. You're weird. You know those? They're weird. Those commercials are weird, but I remember them, and, I, and so I eat eggs, so it works, I guess. But they may say to you, look, nobody believes that stuff anymore. Really? I mean, that kind of, that's a puritanical lifestyle you're talking about? You must be nuts. Or they may say, look, I mean, don't you know that, I mean, that battle's been fought and you lost? I mean, it can happen all over the place. One of the places where it routinely happens with a vengeance is in universities. 
I, okay, my, my university days, my undergrad days were a long time ago in the late Middle Ages. But it happened even then. I remember the history prof who came into class and we're talking about the Roman world and he says, the New Testament, a kind of infallible authority on everything? Are you kidding? Or I remember uh, I was a math major. Okay, it's, that's the right first step toward becoming a theologian, trust me. I was a math major, and I still remember when I said to my, my academic advisor, who was one of my profs, I'm going to finish the degree, and then I'm going to seminary. And he said, well, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, before we were putting objects in outer space flying around, I guess I could have made sense out of that, but I don't know what sense that makes now. Or in my final uh, semester, that course in philosophy of religion, when the prof turned out to be a former conservative Lutheran pastor who had become an agnostic, that was a fascinating experience. And so our faith can be tested in many, many ways. If you want to ask what it's like for a public figure, ask Andrew Scheer. Remember that, that election back in 2019? Now he was constantly harassed for holding actual, traditional Catholic views? And I don't just mean capital C Roman Catholic, I mean small c Catholic, universal. Truths affirmed by the church universal in all its forms throughout its history, until our modern revisionism. He was hounded mercilessly. That's what it's like in our time and place. And yet, Peter says, in the midst of all that, we can rejoice. We know we're suffering now for a little while, but we know that this, our tested faith is more valuable than, than even gold. And in the end, verse 7, it will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he comes again and the righteous judge declares the truth about all of us in human history. Think of it a, a little bit like this. Yes, we're, we're still experiencing the trials, the testing of our faith, but we're confident about the end of it all. It's a little like if, if you're in an athletic contest in a sport that has a, a clock, a time limit. The game can be, the winning team can be confident the game is effectively over long before the game actually ends. And you can still have bad stuff happening to the winning team, but everybody knows who the winning team is. Say, let's say the Maple Leafs are ahead of the Bruins by four goals with five minutes to go in the game. 
Yeah, okay, I, some of you have memories, I get that. But generally, we would be very confident this game is functionally over, but we've got to play out the final five minutes. But it would be pretty clear who's going to win. Jesus struck the decisive blow in his death and resurrection. We know who's going to win, even as our faith is tested now in the present. So how do we respond to all this? Well, Peter says, how could we not love him who did this for us, who died as a sacrifice for our sins? and rose from the dead. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, you haven't seen him, I know, you haven't seen him in the way I have, but you love him. And, and, and you love him with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you know you're receiving the goal of your faith, which is your final salvation. The salvation of your souls, he describes it, it's one of those places where we have to remember soul doesn't always mean soul as opposed to body. Often it just means the person. In chapter 3 of this letter, Peter will say, eight souls were saved in the ark. They weren't disembodied things floating around in the ark. There was eight persons. Our whole person will be saved in the end And because we know it's because of the risen Christ, we love him and long for the day when we can express that to him. In the same way, someday, I'd like to express my appreciation to those who developed the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. My wife and I have had one shot anyway, and I'm reasonably confident that vaccine will have good effects. I'm also looking forward, I, I, I would like someday, I don't know if this will be possible, I'd, I'd love to meet the people who actually developed penicillin. Because when I was three years old, I had viral pneumonia and acute appendicitis at the same time. And some said, sorry, he's not going to make it. Obviously, they were wrong. And a part of all that was Penicillin. You and I are often told, as traditional believers in Jesus, that we're simply on the wrong side of history. I've been told that a few times recently. But remember, that's what they said on Good Friday. That's what the world said to Jesus on Good Friday. But on Sunday, God spoke the truth. And so if you want to be on the right side of history, really, then trust in the one who rose from the dead after he atoned for our sins, who's enthroned in heaven, who will come again to judge and to reign and to bring those who believe in him into God's new creation. The world said no to Jesus, but God said a resounding yes when he raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, today, in a special way, we remember that day long ago when you raised Jesus, Messiah, 
and Lord from the dead. You vindicated him in the face of unbelief. You gave him the name above every name, and you call every tongue to confess that he is Lord. And so, Father, make that a reality in the lives of all of us here today. We love him who first loved us, and we long for his appearing, and we anticipate it with confidence in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.